Welcome to Dividing Lines, a series of special programs from the Near Futurist, in which we bring together respected innovators and thinkers to examine some of the most consequential debates in technology and society today. Dividing Lines is powered by Diffusion, an award-winning international PR agency on a mission to help tech innovators to take on the status quo and transform the future faster. My name is Guy Clapperton. And if you want to feedback on the podcast, or maybe even suggest ideas for guests and topics, I'd love to meet you in the shiny LinkedIn group I've set up. Just search for my name and Near Futurist, and you'll find it pretty easily. Now, we've been hearing a lot about the virtual world in recent years, but it's actually nothing new, although it's evolved massively recently. When I released my first book on social media in 2009, I noticed gift tokens in the supermarket for Facebook. Now, since Facebook doesn't charge directly, I assume those were for in-app purchases. I don't know, virtual sheep for a farm game or something. More recently, an NFT, non-fungible token, of the first draft of Hey Jude by Paul McCartney sold for $60,000. Now remember, that's $60,000 in order not to own the physical notes that Sir Paul actually wrote. And Facebook is, of course, betting the farm on the forthcoming importance of what it calls the metaverse. Now, at this point, you might be wondering whether I actually understand or even get all this. And it's a fair question. I'm more than slightly bemused. So I've got two guests for this episode. One is a filmmaker and former creative director at Harmony and head of video and multimedia at The Defiant. And with over 20 years of experience, he is responsible for growing The Defiant into one of the most popular web-free channels. More recently, he's set up Based AF, a multimedia production company specializing in content made for, about, and in the metaverse. His name is Robin Schmidt. I also have the author of the forthcoming book, Facing Our Futures, available on the 16th of February from Bloomsbury and, of course, all good bookshops. He's worked with over 300 organizations, including Google, Microsoft, NASA, the United Nations, American Express and Rolls-Royce, and he advised Robert Downey Jr.'s team for the Age of AI documentary series. He's a keynote speaker and a futurist. And those last two things means he basically gets all the gigs I want. His name is Nicholas Badminton. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Okay, so we've had the cynical acts introduction. That's obviously my job. Uh, Robin, tell us a bit more about this emerging market, this emerging environment, if you like, what it's all about. And of course, do tell us about Based AF. Well, you've opened with the most vast and expansive questions you could possibly ask. Emerging market, yeah, it's an evolving market. It's, I guess, a world in which we're seeing the maturation of a bunch of different technologies. And if you've picked up on ChatGPT and AI recently, you can see how quickly these technologies can suddenly be adopted and flourish. But I think it's it's the world of video games colliding with the world of the internet, colliding with the world of entertainment, colliding with the rise of the creator economy, and just a realization that the stalwarts of the last 20 years, i.e., you know, a, a mobile phone and the Web2 giants, maybe that era is starting to shift. And, and with that, a changing sense of what technology will be like in the next coming decades. And that's probably the best place to start with because a lot of the things that we'll be debating and possibly discussing are very vague at this point. The metaverse itself is a very vague term. So I prefer to think of it as this nexus point for technologies which are really starting to come into their own in ways that allow them to connect to each other. And as a filmmaker, I'm seeing this myself. You know, We started shooting on film and then we moved to digital. 
and visual effects have matured in that time to the point where they're almost indistinguishable from video games. And that would have seemed unthinkable five years ago. And now we use video game technology to film because it's more cost efficient and it's more, it's better for the environment. So it, I guess it, it's that for me. It's, it's a world in which the, the pillars of what we assumed were the way the world works are being reinvented very, very rapidly. And, and that's throwing up all sorts of different opportunities for storytelling. And we'll get into that storytelling because I know it's a bugbear of yours later on, but it's, we imagine what the future will be. We lean on Neil Stevenson and his definition of the metaverse for this pop culture idea of what it will be. And that's where I come in with Based AF. Now, I'm I'm not necessarily for or against the metaverse per se. I just find it fascinating. And as someone who came up as a you know a journalist and shooting music videos and shooting things that now move into pop culture, it's just been a very natural move for me to get into that space and start to explore what it is through the lens of technology, but also through the lens of just simply having a good time, trying things that we weren't able to do before, looking at storytelling in new ways. And with Base AF, that's really our remit. It's it's not to say the metaverse is good or bad, but it's to explore it, look at it from the inside out, rather than you know stand 20 years in the future and look back and say, this was obvious in hindsight, and it's this $20 trillion opportunity, but to say, well, what is it right now? What can we do with it? How ridiculous is it? And then try and tell the kinds of stories that at least lead us in the right direction in terms of trying to steer this thing in the right direction if it's in it as inevitable as it seems to be. I so basically, if, yeah, so basically, if it's basically, it's, it's a YouTube channel, it's a content creation studio, and we tell stories based in and around the metaverse. You do raise a valid point there, and that uh, what we call the uh, the metaverse is actually the whole the sort of confluence of a whole load of things. In the same way that uh, we now know roughly what we're talking about when we discuss the internet in the early nineteen eighties or the, the the late nineteen eighties, early nineties, when it was sort of first arising, it was actually a bunch of networks just learning to talk to each other, and nobody called it the internet except internet working was a fairly it's a, it's a title that we've applied to it to retrospectively. In terms of moving things on, I mean, as, as well as doing this podcast, I offer media training services. I just throw that in casually every five minutes. Um, and I've just put my first couple of TikTok videos up uh, this week because generations are moving through and people who are called senior and in my case, importantly, have commissioning budget may well be on TikTok. The metaverse is the next coming thing. Robin, what does somebody who's uh, moving into creativity and maybe uh, using uh, uh, the, the internet to publicize their business, what do we need to know about the metaverse? Yeah, that's a really good question. In terms of needing to know about the metaverse, I think the first point is that it's a construct that has been born through pop culture. You know, it's come up through films like Ready Player One and of course Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash. And so you have this this sense of what it is, which is this kind of expansive MMORPG video game environment in which you move through and it's this digital twin of the real world so, just in case i'm a 50 something without a clue could you just possibly you know I'll, I'll play that role just for the sake of the podcast could you explain mmorpg yeah it's a massively multiplayer online role-playing game like world that. of warcraft that. thank you yeah it, it's 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 a social game in which people take on a role and then they go and play that role in a vast world in which they can interact with other players and steer the course of a pretty well-guided storyline, but kind of have some agency and, and independence within that world to define their own storyline. And they're immensely popular. 
for all sorts of different reasons. But, you know, in, in thinking about the history of the metaverse, they play a huge role in defining what I think a lot of people think the metaverse will be or how it presents itself. But there really isn't a standard definition yet. And a lot of people talk about Bitcoin as a solution in search of a problem. And for me, the metaverse is a story in need of a plot. And so, you know, you can look at the numbers. There's been $120 billion spent on metaverse land in 2022. Meta itself spent $36 billion in 2022 building something around the metaverse. And then, you know, various projections put the metaverse at being possibly worth 13 trillion by 2030. And so for me, it's what it is, is less valid than how much money is being spent on trying to figure out what it will be or how to use it or how to do things with it. And there are experiments being done all around the different kind of confluence points, but mainly the kind of technologies you and the touch points you're looking at are interactive 3D assets, photorealistic rendering, the way humans interface with 3D environments, like through AR or VR or XR, which is extended reality. That's kind of the intersection of AR and VR. And then user-generated content. So users creating their own worlds, um, the modding community of massively multiplayer online role-playing games has been a huge driver of their adoption as well as you can kind of build your own asset packs, you can build your own expansion packs. And in some cases, they become more successful than the original game. Then there's avatars, so your digital identity, who you are when you're not the meat version of yourself. And then, of course, the identity management and privacy around that. And then financial transactions. How will we transact with each other in a trustless way? And that's where the crypto heads and the Web3 heads get excited and say, yeah, Bitcoin is the answer. And then everyone else sighs and says, but Bitcoin is crashing. And then we have that old debate. And then there's Internet of Things, which has kind of fallen out of the headlines a little bit, but it's still there. And digital twins, this idea that you could have a building and then have it represented digitally and see everything that's going on with it and be able to diagnose problems that are that are appearing with it. That's a technology that already exists. So that's probably a good place to start with the metaverse. But I suspect most people will just think, oh, this is a video game uh, or this is VR and I don't need it in my life because I don't like VR. And, and then the conversation ends. Nick, should I be skeptical about all this? I, I, I do accept things changing. I swore I'd never need TikTok and now I'm using it. Yeah, so it, it's really interesting. So I really like how uh, how Robin sort of frames everything. We're in this big experimentation uh, around content and different platforms, and you know whether you want to call it Web three or something else, Metaverse. It, it's really interesting times, but it's sort of faltering and. We've seen these sort of hype cycles and, and these cycles of innovation happen all the way since the beginning of the internet and with, you know, things like virtual reality, augmented reality, early sort of internet TV and radio in the 90s, and that all sort of crashed and burned. And we're kind of in that cycle right now with Web3, just trying to work things out. I think ostensibly what we're trying to uh, really create is, is an environment where there's experimentation with gaming more than anything else. And, and gaming is is played by so many people of, of a younger demographic. In, in fact, you know, in, in the United States alone, I think nearly 100% of kids that play games, whether it's on your phones, whether it's a, on a console or, or just on the internet as well. So it's, it's interesting, you know, are we skeptical about this? Yes. But do we frame it in a way that is like, is this good experimentation? It sure is. The thing that gets me with this 
is the speculative asset side of things, you know, the NFTs, how much they're worth, how much they're not worth. I kind of see that we're kind of in a situation where, you know, platforms like TikTok or whatever are starting to generate content. And then Web3 adds this layer of like, oh, how do we monetize this? How do we create more influencers? How do we create people that are, are worth more money? How do we create assets that can be collected and speculated on and traded in new online economies? And it's not really working out quite the way that people have expected so far i think uh very often technologies don't work out in the way that we expect them to and that's in, in some ways half the fun of it if, if 30 years ago you told me that apple was going to be a major telephone company or major music company um I, if you'd said music i might have said uh, that you were confusing it with apple as owned by the beatles and that would have put me in my place right. uh, if i'd been able to leap forward because you know, things do end up unexpected I was reading from your book, Nick, your publisher was kind enough to send me an advanced copy on PDF, which is, uh, so my thanks for that. Uh, I will admit I'm only halfway through it, so apologies for that. But there are areas that uh, you believe that um, people should be devoting their energy to and areas uh, that uh, perhaps uh, they they shouldn't. I get the feeling that you're not the biggest fan of focusing so much energy on Metaverse. First of all, could you comment on whether I'm correct and uh, feel free to put me right in my place if I've misread something. But are there other areas you think we should be concentrating on in terms of uh, you know, focus, I, I, I think I think metaverse and, and internet economies, influencer economies, content, YouTube, TikTok, whatever, uh, kind of are, are distract uh, distracting entities. They're trying to take us away from the, the the burning platforms that we need to pay attention to. I focus very much around water, energy, food the nexus between them, the the challenges there from a geopolitical perspective. I look at population growth, places like Africa exploding, very, very exciting. Median age of, of someone in Africa is 18. We're, we're going to see in a, a huge amount of growth there. Um, the same in Southeast Asia as well. I, I talk about waste. I sort of talk about these things that are like the parts of the industrial complex that are starting to really fail. Whenever I do keynotes, I, I sort of say the last 300 years have been created by capital capitalists and uh, the entire planet's on life support. So I, I I really like to base the work that I do in terms of futures exploration as a futurist to, to really focus people on what is really, really important. Now, you know, really getting people active and excited and activistic about these things can be activated in a number of different online platforms. And maybe there could be elements of of metaversal platforms or uh, executions that could immerse us in these different environments. I mean, I've been following things like virtual reality since the early 90s and really un- trying to understand, you know, being able to put on a headset and suddenly you're you're in you're in an oil spill in Nigeria. I did this with Al Jazeera a few years ago. I I, I went to an experience that they were hosting and you could suddenly, you know, really get a visceral raw feel of what that's like. You're not there live, but you're there in an alternative experience we didn't call it metaverse back then it was just an immersive experience so i i find it really interesting that we can use some of these these technologies to take us to places that help us really feel what it's like because what we have to do is try and speculate what's going to happen in 20 30 50 100 plus years and we have to try and work out how that's going to feel so that we can start to engineer new solutions today so that we can help society and humanity thrive and even survive Do you want to sound as confident as my interviewee in this episode? If you talk to the press or other media, are you worried you'll be misquoted, or they'll just publish their story and not yours? Clapperton Media Associates can help with coaching. 
drop me a note, guy at clapperton.co.uk, and we'll arrange a time for an exploratory call. Now, back to the podcast. Robin, you have a very different uh, focus in your professional life. That's perfectly fair. Not everyone uh, does the same thing for a living. That's completely understood. I'm wondering whether uh, I'd like to pick up on something that Nick just said. Uh, Is it really just a sort of an immersive experience, as we used to call it? Is there more to it than that in terms of the metaverse? I think the scaled up version of it will definitely have that feeling to it. It's very, very difficult to render that experience with the technology we currently have today, because from a networking perspective, it's simply, it's not there yet. But I guess you can kind of look back 20 years to when 4G networks were on sale and, you know, you you probably wouldn't have thought that WAP was a particularly good mobile internet experience and it wasn't, but it seems inevitable that we will get there. And certainly the immersive side of things is really interesting, whether it's for everyone and whether we all want to go around with a set of VR goggles on is debatable. In fact, I think I can say it right now. No, we don't. Uh, I also think the technology interface devices that we use, like the phones we have in our hands, will be become very different devices over the next 20 years. And we'll look back and go, do you really believe that we carried around this slab in our pocket with fingerprints all over it? It will make no sense. And I can't wait for that because I think phones are sort of strangely a physical devices that are kind of changing our physiognomy at the same time. And with two young kids, I'm not that excited to see that happen to them. Oh, but I definitely, as a middle-aged yeah. man, I don't relish the sore thumbs either, but fair enough. So. No, no. Well, th- but that's the thing. The, the, the immersive side of things is really, it's really powerful and it can be, it can really, really confronting as well. And what Nick is saying about shocking people into taking note of the things that matter I mean, that's a powerful story. And it's also completely valid and relevant because I think one of the things that I'm most frustrated with and perturbed by in in the narrative around the metaverse is how overwhelmingly dehumanizing it all seems to be and how it seems to place the value in things that are 100% digital without ever considering the human being at the center of it. And so one of the things that we're kind of trying to do with the content that we create and thank you for dismissing content creators uh nick because i hope to be the exception that proves the rule when it comes to this kind of content because i do think it's important that we that we challenge perceptions and we challenge assumptions around things and at least show it an alternative path but something i did recently was i i became the first human being to run an ultra marathon in the metaverse and what on earth does that mean well i basically i ran for nine hours on a vr treadmill in VR chat in a world that we built. And I had people running with me in the world, just accompanying me and keeping me company for that nine hours. And it was a wholly surreal experience, but it was no less valid than actually running a marathon in real life. And I've actually been to Mexico to run with ultra marathon runners up in the Copper Canyon, like the most disconnected from technology you could possibly be and experience running because they, you know, when people are running ultramarathons, they have support crews that run with them for like short periods of time. And it felt exactly like that, but just the digital version. Now, I'm not saying that that's something that everyone's going to do, but for me, it was really important to try and sort of test the limits of human experience in these worlds to the extent that you can do right now to see what I could learn from that experience. 
And overwhelmingly, it was the social presence. It was the idea of being in two places at once because I had a team around me in the real world, but I also had a team around me in, in the metaverse. That was surreal. I still don't quite know what I got out of it and why on earth that would be better than, than what you get in the real world. But what I do know is that at the age of 45, I've never been in better shape. And it gave me a reason to go out and exercise in, in all sorts of different ways that I wouldn't have done otherwise. And the net positive is that I'm just now I really enjoy running. And I think I'll carry with that with me for the next 20 years. And that was because of the metaverse, not necessarily because of Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse, but because of my own very human experience of that. And so I, for me, there's there's value somewhere in that. But a lot of it is frivolous and a lot of it is driven by, you know, hype bubbles and speculation and and rent seeking and all these other things, which is just kind of annoying and get in the way. Okay. I, I, I can, can, Sorry, can I just uh, in, intercept there? Please. So, Please so just to add on that, um, it was actually really interesting during, uh, during uh, 2020 activities like uh, the Tour de France couldn't happen. So you had uh, platforms like Zwift. So you could, uh, Zwift is for bike riders. So you can, you can take the back wheel off your bike. You can plug it into, to one of these stands. They can actually monitor your performance on that bike. You sit in front of, you stand in front of that screen and you perform and they actually uh, ran a, a Tour de France and an equivalent um, in a virtual world. I'm not going to say metaverse. It's sort of in, in a gaming virtual world. It's very similar to what Robin's saying in terms of running the ultra marathon. I also, <laughs> also watched watch the video video and people like throwing things at you and stuff so i don't think that was very fair so uh but it's really interesting how how we're sort of we're calling things metaverse where it kind of seems like they're they're games rather than than this overarching sort of you know this new promise of a new world and i think it's been with us for a very long time so so there's a big discussion here around you know what do we call this these new experiences are they just like new additions onto things that we're already used to or do we have to have this this whole new redefinition under under a a major sort of category like metaverse and you know in, in all reality it was the billions and billions of dollars that meta x facebook have spent that really made everyone and everyone that I speak to thousands of people I ask people it's like have you heard of the metaverse and everyone's like yes and it's because Mark Zuckerberg spent so much money drilling it into people's heads and then I say does anyone know what it is and I think Robin you sort of highlighted this as well no one really knows exactly what it is is it running a marathon on a treadmill is it doing the Tour de France virtually well, it could be. Um, is it is it producing NFTs and selling them in virtual economies? It could be. It kind of seems like the metaverse has been used as an overall umbrella statement for every single part of the internet. And um, it's, it's really perturbing to me because you've got McKinsey and all these people suddenly putting like $11, $12 trillion market opportunities. And I've worked with some very large consultancies that have asked me to do keynotes on you know the metaverse and whatever that that really think that suddenly buying virtual land and and building these experiences is actually going to get some kind of return on investment for their large clients that are willing to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on it and we've seen you know aside from a few a few people like Nike and whatever people are not really getting the kinds of experiences they want because you know some of these new platforms just aren't that great right now 
Yeah, uh, we may well still be on the first draft of all this stuff, which is, of course, why it's of interest to futurists rather than people who just focus on what's immediately available. Um, but there has been other in incidents. I mean, you've mentioned a few times uh, the idea of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, in other words, sort of digital representation of physical objects. Recently, Damien Hurst burnt a load of his paintings because uh, he wanted to give people the choice of owning the NFT or the physical object, and he was going to destroy the other one. I mean, Robin, perhaps you give me an idea of what you thought about that is was it just a publicity stunt oh boy well yeah <laughs> growing, growing up in london when i did and, and being a young 20 year old in london like damien house was like he was the shit you know and then we had this whole cool britannia thing we had tracy emin we had the white cube like damien Hurst for me was always like on the cutting edge of really what modern london british you know british art was about and so here's the thing i have two of those paintings and they're hanging up in my house um so so i, as, I am the problem here. it's just, so when i saw this question i was I, I did have to chuckle because this question of whether you burn the art or you keep the art is really fascinating and the, the thing about those paintings i just should say this is that he actually made them in 2016, mm. so before NFTs, and he made 10,000 of them. I have no idea why on earth he decided to make 10,000 of them, but that is like a key number in the NFT world. 10, <laughs> Maybe if you uh, take whatever it was that you paid for these paintings, then multiply that sum by 10,000, you'll get the answer as to why he made 10,000 of them. Just a thought. Just a cynical thought, but uh, oh no, uh, no, but that's 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 why it's called the currency, right? It's because yeah. it's it's a it's a commentary on money, and like these things have been painted by hand. They, 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 he didn't just low effort them and stick oh, them sure, into the sure. universe. But what what is really fascinating is, of course, you know, the NFT world suddenly just out of thin air created a, a, an army of art critics. Uh, who had seen one JPEG and decided that they were then the expert. And that's really kind of one of the problems of this space is like everyone says, oh, I love the art. But like, do you? Do you really love the art or do you love the money attached to buying and selling the art? And listen, like, I have no issue with people who trade for a living and that's what they do. And NFTs are a good trade if you know what you're doing. They're a terrible trade if you don't because they lose value and then they, there's no way for that value to come back and you can get caught holding a bag of well, garbage. But with Damien Hurst, he, he was basically saying, you know, make the decision which is better for you, owning the physical painting or owning the digital one. I, I bought two because I thought I might keep one and get the other one, get the physical one for the house. But I actually got two and got physicals because I have two kids and I thought it'd be a nice thing for them to own later on. And I just like the way they look. Honestly, I genuinely do. And it, it's like how much I pay for them is i mean I'm are they worth cry. that much i don't know i'm not gonna but, cry it, it, it doesn't matter how much you pay for them but uh, I, I will say that uh, you know uh that robin bought pictures because he liked the look of them and hung them up in his house because he thinks they look good there and he thinks his kids might like them you heard it here first it's quite refreshing to hear um uh, nick can i can i ask you what, what your view was of the the damien hurst uh thing there or uh similar things of people buying non-physical objects you know I, yeah. I mentioned the hey jude lyrics earlier i don't have sixty thousand pounds to spare if i did i would not spend them on not owning the hey jude lyrics 
You can probably buy those Hey Jude lyrics for about two thousand pounds right now, guy. To be honest, they're probably uh, <clears throat> dropped quite, quite, quite a bit. I always think that a lot of the NFTs that have been uh, um, bought, uh, sort of, uh, they're dropping to zero or they're being stolen. Uh, so that's sort of my cynical um, sort of uh, <clears throat> opinion on that. Damien Hurst is really interesting, <clears throat> and Robin, I think it's great that you actually bought some of them. So in 1991, and I remember going to see this, uh, you know, he created the physical impossibility of death in the mind of someone living, which was a shark suspended in formaldehyde, right? And Damien Hurst has always been the guy as part of the young British artist movement um, to, to sort of say, screw you to the, to the art establishment and to have that strategy of shock and awe. And it's never really changed. And I think his work more than anything is about the celebration of the death of art and and so him burning burning these paintings it is sort of uh, it, it's in step exactly with what he he was meant to do it just so happened that it, it ended up in that sort of pr halo of web3 uh, and nfts i kind of like that you know um it's kind of like the the scorched earth of online tv on the internet in the early 90s there was a a platform called pseudo by a guy called josh harris and uh Andy timina did a really interesting documentary on him called we live in public so so go and check that out this is all like a technophilic sacrifice so that lessons can be passed along to those that build what's next so i think that everything's in the pot to be experimented with people are going to basically lose a lot of money right now um experimenting but as as with all tech there's a long runway forward to what might come next as well in in the corner of the, the room that i'm sat in now which is my studio in Toronto, I've actually got a piece of art by Tom Sachs, and it's a physical piece of art. It was sold as that. It was uh, it was raising money for a gallery in California, but it's actually uh, deemed uh, it's it's actually registered on a blockchain to say you know I own that particular piece of art. It is authentic. So there are really interesting things as part of the whole Web three world um, that can actually have some valid. Uh, usage and you know when i chat to clients it's like you know we can't throw out the baby in the bathwater altogether just because there's a lot of noise um some failed experiments and some difficulty there's some really useful small pieces i just think that the small pieces don't need to be shouted from from the top of the the, you know the skyscrapers to say this is the future They're, they're kind of useful utilitarian mechanisms that could actually really help us do what we need to do in a digital world that's great. We're running out of time, uh, which is a pity because I'm really enjoying the conversation. But uh, perhaps we could finish off. If I, I could ask you where people could find out more about yourselves and what you do, uh, Robin. Uh, so I could be found on the Twitter, as uh, I, I tend to share most of my stuff there. That's where Web3 tends to have its conversation. And I always have a YouTube channel where we're starting to post more and more of the things that I'm now making and the explorations and the stories we're trying to figure out around this quote-unquote metaverse. I do want to say one thing though, in just answer to Nick's point, the the idea of calling things the metaverse, what it has done, it's galvanized a bunch of people who might not have talked to each other previously to start discussing what a set of standards could look like for this quote-unquote metaverse in an open way. And I think that's a net positive in all of this, because if there's one thing we don't want, we don't want tech giants to kind of monopolize the future of what might be the internet. So the Metaverse Standards Forum, for instance, is a place for that to happen. And if they needed an umbrella term in order for that to take place, then okay, great, here it is. So that's probably where I stand on that. Yeah. 
Okay, and uh, Nick, perhaps you could tell us where we can find out more about you. Yeah, so um, you can find me at futurist.com, you can find me at nicholasbadminton.com, you can find me on LinkedIn. If you just type in Nicholas Badminton, you can you can find me um, all over the internet there. Um, to Robin's point, you know, I do think it's good that, that new people are connected. I do think that the tech giants have got too much power, but unfortunately to create a world of interoperability, is very difficult when it's not well funded like the tech giants are and it's why we're not necessarily seeing like the apples the googles the facebook's really getting 100 percent behind this right now because ultimately they just want to create their walled gardens and and you know we're, we're all becoming you know their, their customers their users so uh there's some buyer beware on here i i'm all for indie internet i'm all for open standards this is the new battleground though that makes sense. And by the way, if anybody is looking to uh, connect with Nicholas uh, on um, uh, Twitter or LinkedIn or anywhere else, uh, I should just stress he's Nicholas with a K rather than yeah. a CH. Uh, there may well be another Nicholas Badminton who's there with is. a CH, and he, he could be a mass murderer for all I know, but none of his lawyers are listening. <laughs> so, yeah. Robin Schmidt, Chief Executive of Based AF, and Nicholas Badminton, Chief Futurist at Futurist.com, and author of Facing Our Futures, which is out in February. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And many thanks to you for listening. That was the Near Futurist podcast with me, Guy Clapperton, and my guests in the latest in the series of Dividing Lines, sponsored by Diffusion PR. Don't forget to have a look at the website at nearfuturist.co.uk, leave a review on iTunes or come along, and have a look at the LinkedIn group. I'll be back soon. This has been a Clapperton Media Associates production.